You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to this episode of the Crisis in the Church series. A slightly different episode for you this week, as we're not tackling a new topic, but we're getting some questions answered that some of our listeners and viewers asked about the recent set of episodes on the Novus Ordo Mass. Father Franks joined us to go a little deeper on questions like the validity of the new Mass, why this rite is different from the other rites the Church has had in its history, and bluntly, how does the Society of St. Pius X have any authority or standing to even discuss these matters? If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the Church, or if you'd like to go back and revisit our previous two dozen-plus episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Now, let's turn to our questions and answers with Father Franks. Welcome to the SSPX Podcast. We are doing an extra episode this week with Father Franks. Hi, Father. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Um, yeah, very busy. Very busy. Very busy. Well, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to go through these with us. Um, our listeners had some questions and there were some comments on YouTube. And so we're going to be taking, uh, we're going to be picking and choosing some uh, comments from YouTube and just asking them to you, Father, and we'll, we'll see what happens on, on this episode. This is kind of a fly sure. by the seat of your pants one, but I think it'll be good. Um, first question. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Uh, first question from, uh, from Richard. Um, Father, how can you say that the Roman canon of the new Roman Missal isn't valid? Yeah. So um, I presume that he's using the word valid in the strict sense of sacramentally valid, as in actually having the ability to confect the sacrament, um, rather than valid as in sort of theologically valid or in some broader sense. Um there's an interesting article on this question of the Roman canon because you know what happened in the uh, in the new missal is that there's a, every, there's a choice of four Eucharistic prayers one two three and four in the place of the the Roman one Roman canon from the traditional mass and either by the by the by there's an actual we can object that there's not a complete identity between Eucharistic prayer number one and the Roman canon, in fact. Um, some of the things, well, first of all, it's lost its obligatory and binding character as canon, as fixed. The Roman canon is called the canon because it's a fixed rule that never changes. And the Roman, uh, the Eucharistic prayer number one is, is one of four. And, um, the many of the Roman saints have become optional, and the signs of the cross can, can be optional now. So it, it's not exactly the same as the Roman canon to start off with. And of course, um, the words of consecration have been changed. And it's another lack of identity with, with the traditional Roman canon. But that's kind of quibbling. Sure. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. But um, no, we're not. The SSPX hasn't attacked the new rite of mass classically by arguing against its validity. So the, the deficiencies in the rite are our point of criticism, not the validity of the sacrament. We're happy to grant um, that the, the, the Eucharistic prayer number one, when said with the right intention by a validly ordained priest with the right matter, can, can be a valid and can convict the sacrament. We're happy to concede that. 
Okay, so the, um, so the issue is not so much that whether or not it's it's valid or invalid. We, the SSPX is not saying that it's not valid. It's saying that there there are deficiencies, there are problems with it. That's not our point of criticism. No, right. It's possible. It's possible that there could be one or the other mass that may be invalid, but that's not a point of of criticism. Okay. Um, we would be happy to concede the validity of all the Novus Ordo masses, and we would still argue against them as theologically d- deficient expressions of the Catholic doctrine and still as dangerous. Got it. Yeah. All right. That's a good distinction. Thank you. Um, on the same sort of topic, uh, Michael said there are different rites in the Catholic Church. Eastern churches have different Eucharistic prayers. And he said the Novus Ordo liturgy is closer to the primitive Christian liturgy. So I guess kind of two points there. There are different liturgies. There are different Eucharistic prayers. Um, yes. Is that an issue? Is that an issue? No, it's not an issue. I mean, there have been different rites since forever. Since I hate to say it. Our Lord Jesus Christ on the day of the last supper didn't put on Roman vestments and right. uh, make the sign of the cross and make up a brown vow and say, Enjoy with Altari Day in Latin. Right. Um, the different rites have been the different human clothings of those divine elements by different um, cultures, all Christian, um, around the divine elements because different people have different natural characteristics, geniuses, languages, artistic expressions, temperaments, national temperaments, and so on. And that's something that the church has already always um, celebrated and welcomed. Uh, maybe there have been tensions at times between East and West, but um, but the church herself, as a good mother, has always um, celebrated and uh, rejoiced in the diversity of Catholic rites of her children. Um, so that's not in itself a problem for us. And I suppose the implicit um, objection is if there are so many d- diversities of rights, the new right is just another one. So what's the right. problem, especially right. if it seems to get back to the um, more primitive models. So if it's, in other words, and this is very much where you sit on this sort of position is going to be a sort of dividing line in 20th century Catholic theology, because the whole of the new theology framed itself and presented itself as a, as a resourcement Right. back to the sources. So we are the traditionalists. We are the ones going back to the fathers. And you, who call yourselves the traditionalists, are just um, ultramontanists who got stuck in the late 19th century and didn't know what to do when things moved on. Right. <laughs> um, so we're more traditional than you are, actually, because we're the ones resourcing everything to the fathers and to St. Thomas and to the Bible, and you're the ones who are repeating the same 19th century commentators and popes over and over again in a closed hermetic system. Right. Um, that's kind of their line. And that, if you read Humani Generis, um, that appeal to the sources in order to shuffle off the precisions added by the 19th century, the the 20th century magisterium, early 20th century, the 18th century, the Thomistic commentators, the, the church's further precisions, and that sort of movement the church doesn't like in doctrine, and Pius XII was clear as well, doesn't really like in liturgy. If you read Mediata Dei, he condemns in the liturgy something that he calls archaeologism. 
the archaeologism means going back to the very, very earliest, most primitive um, expressions of um, liturgical expressions and taking them as as a template and a standard for reforming the present day Catholic liturgy. And he doesn't like it. Um, you can go away and read Mediata Day on that, but for the same reasons that um, just as the, the, a traditionalist author would say the profound reason of seeking a greater contact with the fathers and um, some of them, it wasn't even the church fathers. It was, you know, origin <laughs> right. authors that were ecclesiastical authors, not even saints and not even Orthodox. Um, you know, it's to shuffle off the, the precision of, of the later theology, the more precise Catholic theology and the sort of archaeological archaeologist tendency in the liturgy also um, showed its head. Had some, look, I had this argument with another sort of liturgist, a friend of mine. I won't name his name, but um, and it's it's good for us to engage um, across these theological battle lines because sometimes you think you're very confident in your point, and he said, "I'm a Catholic." And I'm a traditional Catholic, and I think it's terrible what was done to the churches, because in all of the churches, they um, removed the tabernacles from the central place in the churches, and they put the tabernacles in the in the corner to get rid of Christ, to de-emphasize the real presence of the Eucharist, to please the Protestants, and it's terrible. And they've taken my Lord, and I don't know what they've done with him. And he said... You don't know anything about liturgical history. Um, they're just restoring your parish church to the model of a medieval cathedral where the bishop's chair would always have pride of place and the Blessed Sacrament would always be um, in a side chapel. And nobody right. accused the medievals of having a lack of devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, but the presiding chair is the important thing. So it's true to say that they do have a set of justifications for those changes that they've made. And they're not always like, hmm, let's find a way to minimize the Blessed Sacrament. Ha ha ha. Right. Concretely, that's what's happened. And we know that there are some modernists who are very pleased with those changes for those reasons. And we know that it's damaged the faith of the people. So I don't think, I think we can separate, we, we don't have to judge the intention of the reforms we can listen to the justification, but we can still say it doesn't. It hasn't been a, a good thing for the church. It has diminished the Eucharistic devotion of the people and the sense of the real presence. And thank you very much for your experiment to restore my parish church to a medieval cathedral, but I want it back, and I want Christ in the Blessed Sacrament back in the center. And if that means that I'm incurably 19th century and Vatican I, then I'll own the label. Right. Right. And it sounds kind of funny for a traditionalist to say this, but not everything that is old is good. And that's not what tradition is about anyway. We're not, like you said, just liturgical archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting. I don't know if I answered that objection, really. I mean, the thing is, sorry, what, what Pius XII says is for resourcement, they hope that once we've got back to a 
simpler form of expression from scripture from the fathers that catholic doctrine can be favorably compared with the doctrine of the non-catholics and we can have a greater unity so he's saying behind the resourcement movement there's also the ecumenical intention and behind the liturgical resourcement if you like the 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 primitivist um the uh, the archaeologist tendency also the ecumenical intention was overt and explicit for the reformers and here's the thing there are two big principles that the liturgical reformers used <laughs> so the one was um restoration of primitive pr christian practice um getting back to the pristine tradition before the, the all of the overlays of the 15 16 17 18 19th centuries so um antiquity, restoration of antiquity, and the other one was pastoral adaptation to the modern world, active involvement and engagement with the pastoral needs of the day. And between those two things, you can justify pretty much whatever you want. Right. So either you say it was the early practice of the church, or you say, um, this is what the pastoral needs of modern man require. And the fact is, we, we know what their intentions were at a, at a doctrinal level because they were explicit. You know, we have those quotes that I presented to you, Archbishop Bunini, to remove every, so much of a, everything that could provide so much of a shadow of a stumbling block or some displeasure to the separated brethren. Um, the quote of Monsignor well, Langling about, you know, the uh, interfaith um, dimensions and... Um, the, the prominence given to the theology of Domo de Cassel and the Paschal Mystery Theology, um, which traditionists object to and seems to be at odds, very much at odds with the theology of the Council of Trent and the traditional conception of the redemption, um, which they overtly said, this is the theology we're using for the liturgical reform. We have their quotes. So it's not as if the traditionists are just seeing something and reading it in the worst possible light. If we're doing that, it's because we have the avowal of the creators where they made their intentions explicit and clear, and we know that those intentions are not favored by the church. We've seen the condemnation of ecumenism. We've seen the condemnation of the reconception of the redemption. We're not making these things up. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, moving on to our, here are some comments from uh, the number 25, should Catholics attend the Novus Ordo Mass? Um, mm -hmm. there's one here I think that is probably fairly easy to answer, or at least a short answer. Um, yeah. Crossing the Trail said, what if a Byzantine Catholic or a Melkite Rite Mass is available as an alternative to the Novus Ordo Mass? Can I go? Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's that much of a, a straightforward answer, actually. A bit like Father Robinson's <laughs> thing. The uh, Father Robinson's um, categorization was into sort of three broad categories. There are masses which pose no danger whatsoever to the faith because they're offered by a traditionalist priest who is truly such. Mm -hmm. um, that is, he sees the danger of the new principles. He opposes them as a matter of the faith, not just as a matter of preference. And um, he offers a traditional rite. Uh, then there are masses where the rite is traditional, but it could be um, there could be some inconveniences or some dangers in the milieu in the theology of the priest offering and the things surrounding where we can say there's some danger to the faith but the right is still a Catholic right 
So that's a bit more um, foggy, and that's where the whole question of prudence and what exactly is going on there, and case by case, and whereas the person who's even going at, and that whole thing enters in, which is why Father Robinson was unwilling to just be like, you know, right. bam, 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 yes, you, yes, you know. Um, and then the, the, the things that are clearly dangerous in themselves, right? which is going to be, you know, modernist rights mm-hmm. and so on, the, the new ones. So um, the, uh, the non-Western rights, um, the church loves and has no problem with. But you have to know that after Vatican II, the liturgical reforming that brought us the new right of mass in the Western um, world did not limit itself to the Western world and that the, the um, traditional rights of the East were also affected to different degrees in different rights. So sometimes when you say it's a, a, a Byzantine right, uh, they wouldn't say mass because that's a Western term. They would say liturgy. You could say liturgy. Yeah. Um, divine liturgy or Melkite right liturgy. Sometimes that might mean really the, the ancient unchanged traditional Melkite rite, the ancient unchanged Byzantine rite, in which case um, the rite itself poses no problem. Right. Or it might mean something that has suffered the same sort of liturgical vandalism and maybe been altered even as a vehicle of the new theology, I think, um, as the new mass. And I haven't looked in great detail myself into all of the adaptations of those different non-Western liturgies, but um, they're not, it, when they say Maronite, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the, the traditional rite as it was prior to the council and from antiquity. So there's a question mark there over what form of the rite itself and what kind of changes have been introduced. Then, and this gets a little bit ahead of where we were, and I actually we had some some viewers who were upset by some of Father Robinson's comments, particularly about the fraternity of St. Peter. And mm-hmm. I understand that because we haven't talked about that yet. It came a little bit out of place. So yeah. th- we will talk about a little bit about the differences of position on the crisis between the fraternity of St. Peter and, and the Society of St. Pius X, and hopefully um, give some context for why the society would um, take the sorts of positions that Father Robinson articulated um, to explain ourselves a little bit before just <laughs> firing right. condemnations. Um, and and it's, not, it's not that but, you and Father Robinson are just sitting here trying to be tribalistic about it and say, well, I am an SSPX priest, therefore I want you to go to an SSPX mass. I mean, of course you think the SSPX is the right place to go, Otherwise, you wouldn't be an SSPX priest. So, of course, yes, you're, you're going to say that. But at the same well, time, that's the thing. you're if, not if just... We thought, if we thought that, that the other that there was no problem caused by the positions of you know, some of the other Latin mass groups, we would actually have no right to be doing what we're doing. Right. Because we're not in a regular canonical position. Right. So... Um, Unless there's a necessity that justifies that, which means that the state of necessity isn't ended even by the existence of these groups, which we don't think it is, we wouldn't. I wouldn't have the right to be sitting here as an SSPX priest, you know, 
St Mary's wouldn't be the right to have the right to have our school and to have our parish and so on. We should shut down and uh, everybody can go to Maple Hill if they want, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's there's a difference of, of perspective and judgment there, difference of position there. So no, when it's not it's not just a question of tribalism. I mean, everywhere you get humans, you get tribalism, eh? Right. <laughs> you don't get away from that. Right. And um, with the fraternity and the society, I mean, uh, we split from the same people, the same right. organization. So uh, um, certainly, even maybe some amongst the older priests, there might be some animus. Um, mm-hmm. You don't find it so much amongst the younger priests. Um, I found them all very, very cordial and and polite, and we try our best to be the same to them. You know, um, that's it's history, and you know. So. Right. But um, no, I mean, sorry, I'm just lots of tangents. But the uh, even if you have a traditional Eastern rite, the question is what surrounds it, because the for the SSPX. The, the the right itself it's not just it's the, the crisis of the church isn't just the crisis of the liturgy exactly there's also the crisis of of the theology that surrounds it the um the tendency in the church to naturalism to um ecumenism to um a new theology which is hostile to the faith and undermines the faith which is more or less officialized in in something like the new catechism so um, if it's just a traditional right, but all of the ecumenism is there surrounding it, and all of the other things are there surrounding it, so that it's essentially uh, uh, like a novice order environment. Can mm-hmm. I say that? Right. But the, but it's a traditional Byzantine right or something. But they're so Byzantine that they're everything's to everything's to emphasize and the union with the. Uh, the orthodox and there's you know the right. kind of world that could lose a Catholic, you lead a Catholic to get disorientated and say why am I even Catholic? What's the what's the problem? What's the point? Um, then we would say it becomes a danger not in itself, but in its taken as a whole. But the priest may still not have. A, a, a traditional theological formation. So there still could be things in the sermons. Um, the priest may not see all the problems, and certain to the extent that it's ecumenical, and the extent that it becomes um, a, a naturalistic or a non-Catholic environment, um, that would be an excusing cause from mass attendance as i understand it in the old days actually being constrained to attend outside of your right was already a, an excusing cause it was right. just um it's too different and it's too much to expect these poor western catholics to go to something that's so culturally foreign anyway that yeah. it would have considered that you don't have to go so um don't think traditionally the mind of the church is that we go church hopping between different rites actually I think the tradition is what the the right that you're baptized in is what you should stay in, generally speaking. Oh yeah, for sure. That's that's for sure. Yeah. But even as far as like worship, right. that you that you shouldn't be hopping around. That's the kind of mind of the church classically. Yeah. So, um, so may you go 
I can't tell you if it's an, a traditional right that nobody's fooled around with to bring the new theology with it. I don't think I'm in a position to tell you you may not go, that it would be sin to go or something. But then look at the environment. Right. Uh, in all of its totality, um, is it a traditionalist environment? Um, and if you have kids, well, all of that sort of thing, yeah. what sort of associations and so on. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to... But if you're trying to raise a family or something, and it's not it's not determinant, the main things are the theological things, but then again... Like, all these things, that, sort of it becomes a matter secondary. of prudence. Yeah. The, okay. the, the, the main thing there, the main danger for us as traditional Catholics is that we'll obscure in our own minds the essentially doctrinal theological nature of the crisis and we'll come to think it's just a crisis of the liturgy which can just be solved by a traditionalist liturgy it's like there's no there's there's much more going on in the church there are many more dangers than just this mass or that mass right so is the environment protected from those dangers or is it exposed to those dangers i think i think that's hugely important to to bring up father and i know we're probably going to talk about it at another episode probably when we talk about the the society of saint Pius the 10th itself and the mm-hmm. state of necessity and all that stuff that we'll get to later on at towards the end of the series. But uh, I think I saw in another comment on a previous video, someone saying, well, why is the SSPX even still in existence after the motu proprio in 2007? You guys don't even have a state of necessity anymore. And the issue is it's not about the liturgy just because the liturgy was made more widely available and, and Pope Benedict gave that motu proprio. It, there's the issue has never been about, the traditional Latin mass. It's been yeah. about the traditional Latin mass and everything else that surrounds it and the modernism and the, all that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, precisely we, we fight for the traditional mass because we try fight for the traditional theology. Right. And they fight against the traditional mass because they fight against the traditional theology. So yeah. it's the most obvious, um, point of issue, but it's certainly not, it's not even the most important one. If if we f- oppose the new mass, it's because we oppose ecumenism. So if you take away the new mass and leave us with ecumenism, we still have the problem. Right. So. Uh, we did have a few comments on that same video that were all probably around the same sort of, getting at the same sort of point. Um, one person said, obedience before preference. So you guys just prefer the Latin mass, you should obey. Uh, another person said, the SSPX, by virtue of its position, is taking a classical Protestant stance by protesting the post-conciliar church. Another person said uh, SSPX is overstepping, um, telling people to stay at home if they can't get to a traditional Latin Mass is an overstep of authority. They have no authority to dispense with the Sunday obligation. So those yeah. are all kind of in the same thing. What gives you, Father, a priest of the SSPX, the right to tell people what to do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's the judgment of the traditional priests following Archbishop Lefebvre that the new rite of the Mass, we can show that it contains principles condemned by the Church and as such constitutes a danger to the Church, um, a danger to the faith of the faithful, that it introduces ecumenism, that it leans in the direction of Protestantism and deliberately Protestantism, um, that it embodies a new theology that the church is at odds with. We don't want our faith to be distorted. 
and we realized these were the intentions of the people who made it. They were explicit. It's been accepted by the the Protestants and so on and, and celebrated. And, you know, Dr. Max Furian saying that it could be accepted and celebrated by a Protestant and a Catholic alike. So, um, and it's had a bad effect on the on the faith of the people. So we've got enough evidence there to see um, there's a problem here. We have the Otto Vianney intervention, um, a striking departure from the theology of the Catholic theology of masses formulated at the Council of Trent. We have enough um, people in positions of theological competence and on on both the liberal and the conservative side, um, admitting that there is some that there are there's ecumenism involved here and that there's a new theology involved here enough for us to say, okay, this is, it's not something, this is something to be considered carefully. I think the, the whole question of dispensation and the Sunday obligation is more what father Robinson was talking about. So for us, um, Archbishop Lefebvre always insisted, just coming back onto St. Thomas and the, the basics, a law is an ordinance of reason for the common good, promulgated by one having the care of the community. So, an ordinance of reason, it has to be reasonable, ordering people to their end, for the common good, legitimately promulgated by the true authority. Okay. Um and we would object that the new mass doesn't fulfill the, the the notion of law on a couple of cases. I mean, it's not reasonable to ask us to assist her to write that we know introduces principles and is founded for the sake of leading towards principles that the church has already condemned. That's not a reasonable request. And it's not for the common good. For the common good of the church is the faith and the living of the faith and the sanctity of souls, the salvation of souls. And we can see that this mass leads away from that just by looking at what the people who made it said, looking at what the competent theological authorities judging it said, looking at the effect that it's had on people statistically and maybe anecdotally. Um, we've got enough evidence that we can be sure beyond the, a prudent doubt in other words, morally certain, which is the only sort of certainty the church requires of us and the only sort of certainty you can have in practical matters, that this is not for the good of the church. And therefore, if it's not for the good of the church, it is not a law. It's an unjust law is no law. An unjust law is no law. So the law that tells me, you know, jump off this cliff and fall to your death or does something, you know, you may have one child and no more, so you have to use immoral means after you have your one child. It's not a just law, and it doesn't bind me. So what the SSPX is, is not saying is, you have your Sunday obligation, and I dispense you because I am the bishop. Or the What we're saying is, um, this sort of mass is, isn't the sort of thing that falls under an obligation to go to. It's not, like, the law would not apply there. Just like if you, and even if it's valid, even just imagine you found an old priest 
in Elizabethan England ordained a Catholic priest who'd now gone along with the changes and accepted the prayer book of Edward VI for the reforms of Cranwell or something. So the writers of, of Protestant and Calvinist inspiration, and he says it in English and all of the things, but he's still a validly ordained priest and he still says, for this is my body. He does, and he says that the consecration such as to be valid. Mm-hmm. We're not going to say to any Catholic, you're obliged to go to that under pain of, of losing your soul. Now, it's slightly different because there's a, there's a clear, and there was an excommunication and so on, and Henry's schism and so on. Right. But in itself, we have a right, validly ordained priest, a right that doesn't express the Catholic theology, but yet valid in that case. Uh, and the Catholic would say, no, I have no obligation to go, and I should not go. And the church has canonized people for refusing to go to those sorts of things. The recusants who paid the fine rather than go to the Anglo-Conservatives, uh, they're the heroes of Catholic history. And um, so it's not a question of our dispensing. It's a question of using our moral certainty that this right has not been for the good of the church, that it does endanger the faith, um, to say, in which case, the church cannot oblige me to something that's evil or dangerous. And that's how we understand the new right, that you'll find traditionists saying evil, but in the in the metaphysical sense, lack of a do-good, lack of a do-good, that there's something that should be there which is not there. I mean, I would say the point of the Sunday obligation is to worship God in the way that he wants. So if we know that he wants a right which um, we know he wants to be worshipped by the sacrifice of Christ, which makes up for the sins of the world offered by the priest, then we don't want to offer him a right that has deliberately concealed those Catholic elements for the sake of pleasing Protestants and, and ecumenism endangers the faith of the faithful that introduces an ambiguity into the most fundamental act of a human towards God, which is the act of sacrifice, um, that leads to a loss of reverence for God, that puts makes man forget his true position before God as a sinner in need of mercy, that diminishes the prayers for the dead, changes the confiture, lets us forget purgatory and the pains of hell. That's a voluntary occasion of exposing ourselves to a diminution of the faith. None of those things, once we know we see that that way, if that's our judgment, that we say, how can God be pleased with this? Even if valid, even if from that one point of validity, you would say the angels are on their faces. But still, that's the right is taken as a whole. And the act is taken as a whole with all of its circumstances. In a sense, if if, if an apostate Catholic priest passed a bakery and had a <laughs> glass of wine in his hand and said, um, corpus meum with a bakery and consecrated the wine, then you have a valid mass and it's infinitely pleasing to, to Almighty God from that one point of validity. Does that make the whole act a good act? A Catholic would still be horrified. Now, that's a very strong comparison for the new mass and I don't mean to say that there's any malice on the part of the priests who celebrate it and so on these are often um, you know, good pious men doing their best but they um, do not see clearly with the same at least with that judgment I would argue that um, we have in the traditionist movement through the providential 
benefits of a, a very clear-sighted soul like Archbishop Lefebvre, a man of the church, who um, Archbishop Schneider says um, reading his writings is like reading one of the great fathers of the church. He said that in his most recent book. Right. Um, so how can we be so sure? We, we, I, I would argue we have enough certitude combined with all of those things. They told us why they were doing it. The conservative theologians agree. We've seen the fruits of it. None, it all points in a bad direction. And that's yeah. enough. At the end of the day, you know that the internet is a big place and the church is a big place and you can go and find people who will tell you what you want them to tell you. But this is the judgment of tradition. Yeah. This is the, of the traditionalist movement on the SSPX. Now, you can find an article online that that we have on our SSPX site. Um, the Archbishop Lefebvre, um, it is tradition that condemns the new right of mass. It is not I. Where he shows these, you know, the the errors that are, we know to be in the new right already tradition has spoken about. The Council of Trent has spoken about and so on. And I think that's interesting. An interesting thing for the, um, you know, do the SSPX's masses for filials and obligation, which came up um, in one of these uh, thunder thumbs, <laughs> um, repeatedly stated those who wish to attend the SSPX mass because there's no other option, that by attending such a mass, they do not satisfy their Sunday obligation, obedience before preference. Um Father Weizmann, I think, or somebody's going to talk about the limits and nature of obedience a little bit later, so hold that thought. Yeah. But um, Father Z is of a different opinion, which you must know. Um, he's been writing about this more and more recently as a canonist, Father Zulzdorf. Um He's probably a known author. Um, and his, uh, his position is pretty much, he makes reference to the times when he was... Um, working for the Ecclesia Day Commission and how they um, how they handled things. And what he says is, um, as I've written a zillion times on this blog about fulfilling Sunday and holy obligations, in Canon 1248, number one, we read that a person who assists at a Mass celebrated anywhere in a Catholic rite, either on the feast day itself or on the evening of the day, satisfies the obligation of participating in Mass. Again, the SSPX priest uses a Latin rite and the Missale Romanum and other liturgical books of the Latin Church. So yes, you can choose to go to a Mass of the SSPX, not just because there's no other Mass, but because you want to. No question. So that's his position. Um, and he goes on to talk about all of those sorts of things that raised issues there. But he's always treating how how did we deal with it when I was sitting there and people appealed to us for these sorts of questions on, on the commission that was established for determining the Latin Mass mm-hmm. um, relations in the Catholic world. So, um, and he's an interesting and learned character. So that yeah. would be a sort of counterpoint there. Obedience before preference for us, it's not a preference. It's not a preference, right. It's not a preference. Um, for us, the, our attachment to the new mass, to the traditional mass, is, is firmly doctrinal. Our opposition to the new mass is firmly doctrinal, and it's what we believe ourselves held to do in conscience, as wanting to keep the faith and be loyal sons of the church. I have no, um, 
you know, woe to me if I did not <laughs> fight the new mask. Right. Um, so I've been this before preference. If you mean preference for the traditional mass over the old mass, that's not our position. It's not a preference of um, we like Latin and lace and smells and bells and we prefer extraordinary things to ordinary things. Right. That's not our position. We regard the traditional mass because we're Western Catholics who want to keep the liturgical expression of the faith of always. Um and then obedience before preference were SSPX versus the other traditionalist groups that will come later, that sort of discussion. But um, obviously those who feel in conscience unable to assist at uh, a mass of the fraternity St. Peter or something have their reasons because they view that there is there's some um, danger to principles there. We'll, we'll discuss that later. That's not for me to talk about now. Okay. I really wanted to catch you on some sort of a zinger, like a one, one line thing oh, that can I can blast all over the internet. But oh, really? <laughs> yeah, um, I I don't want to be blasted all over the internet. Yeah, well, that's boring. <laughs> unless people, unless people, never mind. <laughs> all right, better go. All right, thank you, Father. Thank you for listening to and watching this episode of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 27, Father Patrick Summers will join us to speak about ecumenism. We'll explore the effects of ecumenism on the Catholic Church and how, instead of being the new way to evangelize, as was blindly promised so many years ago, threatens to turn Catholicism into a schizophrenic religion. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week, thank you for listening and God bless you.